morning, church. So, beginning of August, um, we started a series through the Minor Prophets. Uh, Dwight mentioned that we're going to be coming back to that series next Sunday in the book of Micah. So you can hang out in Micah this week and you'll be ready to go. Um, I'm actually going to be doing a wedding next weekend. The wedding is Sunday, and so I won't be here. Uh, Brother Dwight is going to be preaching from uh, the book of Micah. But two weeks ago, we took a little hiatus from this series in the Minor Prophets, and it was a three-week hiatus, and this is the third week. And the original plan, um, as I thought of just some of these front-burner issues that really are on our hearts and minds and impacting us, um, one, in reference to submission to governing authorities, as we've wrestled with and probably been frustrated with guidelines and, and you know, the application of all of that um, with covid and then it was going to be Romans 14, 15 on unity because there's lots of stuff that could threaten to divide us in times like these, right? And then thirdly, that was going to be lined up with the, uh, the uh, picnic last week was hope in Romans 15, particularly that one verse that we looked at last week. Well, as we wrestled with those things as elders, I felt like it wasn't quite time to do the message on governing authorities because we weren't all on the same page as far as the application. Like <laughs> all of the elders are on the, on the same page as far as wanting to follow Romans 13, right? Submission to governing authorities. But what that looks like, we're still wrestling through as far as the application of those things, okay? So that's why I bumped it to the end in case you're wondering, why do we go 14, 15, 13? Well, that's why, because... We want to be together and on the same team, um, which we are on the same team, but just we needed some more time to process through some of that. So anyway, uh, we love each other, we respect each other, and we just disagree in some ways. And so actually, we've had like a little microcosm, I think, on our elder team, and it's given us an opportunity, hopefully, to... Um, work some of this stuff out together because we all have to work this stuff out together, don't we? Right? We're not all going to agree on these things, but we have to guard the unity and we have to have real and substantial unity, not just like this uh, smile when we're talking and then go back, rah, 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 rah. like real substantial unity, even in the midst of some disagreement and um, where we're in different places on it. And you know what? Also, we need to recognize that our battle is not against flesh and blood on this stuff. When there's threats to unity, there is an evil one who has schemes, and he wants to get his foot in the door to divide us. And we need to be defiant against that. We need to resist the devil that he would flee from us and submit to God and trust in him. So, um, so here we are at the end of this little hiatus. And as I continued to consider these things, I thought, you know what? We really ought to look not just at Romans 13, but 12 and 13. Um, and I think you'll see why before we're done. Uh, so we're gonna zoom out a little bit and look at chapter 12, verse one through 13, 10, which might make some of you nervous that we're gonna be here to like three o'clock. Um, hopefully that's not the case, but I didn't allay much concern there, did I? Um, so if you are not there yet, 
turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 13. Sorry, Romans chapter 12. So we're going to start there. And while you're turning there, I want, you to, I want you to think of a story that I heard of recently. So I listened to Al Mohler's The Briefing um, on most mornings, usually when I'm in the shower, usually on one and a half or double time, which is great. You know, it's like 20, 25 minutes. Um, if you're not familiar, he's the president of uh, Boyce College and, and Southern Baptist Seminary. And so it's news and current events from a Christian worldview. And so would recommend it, especially on double speed although that's not for everyone. Okay, so about a month ago, he referenced an interesting article in the New York Times by Adam Liptick. It's interesting that this article was in the New York Times. Liptick um, writes about a young man named, uh, I'm probably going to botch this name, but Chike Uzabunam, okay? So I think he's African descent, and he was a student at Um, Georgia Gwinnett College. So I'm going to read an excerpt from this New York Times article, and then we'll dive into Romans 12 here in a minute. So a few years ago, a college student in Georgia stood on a stool outside a campus food court to talk about his Christian faith. He spoke for 20 minutes about human frailty and the possibility of salvation when school officials told him he had to stop or face discipline. This fall, the Supreme Court will hear arguments on whether the student, Chike Uzabunam, can sue the officials for violating his First Amendment rights when they enforced a particularly severe version of the school speech codes that have become commonplace at colleges and universities around the nation. Mr. I'm just going to call him Mr. Yu because I'm still having trouble with his last name. So Mr. Yu had tried to comply with the rules at his school, Georgia Gwinnett College, a public institution in Lawrenceville, Georgia, that sprawls over 260 acres. The college had designated two small patches of concrete as free speech expression areas. By the calculations of Mr. Yu's lawyers, the areas in which free speech was permitted, a patio and a sidewalk, amounted to... 0.0015% of the campus. The free speech zones were available, moreover, only on weekdays and (laughs) and only for four hours on most days and two on Fridays. Thank you for making me not feel bad about my chuckle there. Um, Students could reserve them once every 30 days. When Mr. Yu stepped onto his stool in August 2016, He was in one of the free speech zones. Indeed, he had reserved the space, submitting a free speech area request form three business days before, as required by the college's elaborate freedom of expression policy. All I wanted to do, Mr. Yu said at a news briefing, was to share with other students the faith that has changed my life. A campus police officer told him that he could distribute literature and have one-on-one conversations, but public speaking in a free speech zone, the officer said, amounted to disorderly conduct. Mr. Yu sued, saying the college's policies violated his First Amendment rights. In a brief, in a briefing seeking to dismiss the case, or in a brief seeking to dismiss the case, Christopher M. Carr, the state's attorney general, made a remarkable argument. Quote, Plaintiff's open-air speaking arguably rose to the level of fighting words. That's technical language. It's important to note. Mr. Carr wrote, preferring or referring to one of the few categories of speech that are, in, that are entitled to no protection under the First Amendment. 
plaintiff used contentious religious language that when directed to a crowd has a tendency to incite hostility. The college's defense of its speech code did not last long. About a month after Mr. Carr filed his brief, the college abandoned its policy, perhaps sensing that it was a constitutional catastrophe. Under the revised policy, Mr. Carr wrote a second brief. Students, quote, may speak anywhere on campus and at any time without having to first obtain a permit. Wow, it's quite a change. While students may utilize the public forum areas, he wrote, they are not required to do so and can instead speak anywhere on campus. Mr. Yu said his case was both simple and timely. Quote, the essence of free speech is the ability to tell people the things that they do not want to hear, he said, and that is especially true today when almost anything is practically guaranteed to offend someone's comfort. So, hey, three cheers for Mr. Yu. But I wonder what you think of him also going through the appropriate channels and, and actually suing is also an appropriate channel in this case. So the Bible tells Christians not to sue one another, but in a situation like this, it doesn't prohibit that. And he wasn't doing it with animus. He's actually doing it because of the dangerous precedent that just bowing to that would create. Okay, but I wonder what you think of him going through the appropriate channels to first gain permission from the school. I think there's actually a beauty in both his submission and his defiance. And actually, I think his submission made his defiance that much more credible. And I think probably we all tend to one posture or another, one disposition or another, or at least more easily than the other. And it's rare to find both appropriate submission, appropriate defiance with clarity and wisdom and beauty in the same person, isn't it? Don't we all kind of tend to lean one way or the other? Well, if you want to see both of those things in perfect unity, consider Jesus. And by the way, there's no better focus for your thoughts. <laughs> Jesus. This is the creator God of the universe in the flesh. And he submitted to his parents, sinful parents, when he was 12, remember? He was baptized by John the Baptist. He took care of the wine shortage at the wedding of Cana, even though when his mom first said, you know, just do whatever he says. Like, what does this have to do with me? He paid his taxes and Peter's, you know, with kind of a crazy, you got to go check that one out. It's worth pondering. Hey, hey Peter, go throw your line out. First fish you catch, open its mouth. <laughs> Find a coin, go pay for our taxes. And he went like a lamb to the slaughter. You hear that exam example language that Miriam read from 1 Peter 2? So there was no swagger in the Son of God, no rights orientation. He gave up all of that in coming to earth to serve us and to die for us. No pride, no arrogance, no dismissive annoyance. When he bumped up against bad leaders, 
and even bad laws. He had a soft heart of love and a meek heart of humble submission to his father's will and even to the law of the land. And, okay, so that's true of Jesus. And there was no wishy-washiness or pandering to any authority. There was no slavery to fear. There's no hand-wringing, you know, no chameleonry, no cowering in the face of threats. He had a backbone of steel. He was in nobody's pocket. He confronted his disciples. He confronted the Pharisees. He was an equal opportunity confronter, (laughs) speaker of truth. He wound a whip of cords. He spoke bold truth to the high priest and got slapped for it and Pilate, and he got mocked for it. What is truth? So the saddle of Christ-likeness is greasy, isn't it? Easy to fall off on one side of or the other, the side that we is more natural to us. And Romans 12 and 13, I think, is going to help us tremendously to stay on the saddle, to stay on the path following Jesus. So I'm sorry, but this is probably like the longest sermon outline ever, think of nine points. Um, I'll try for it not to be the longest sermon forever because, you know, me, um, not always the best at short sermons. So we'll go through chapter 12 pretty quickly, but I believe it is so important to hold these two chapters together. And actually, Paul gives us kind of some clear hints that they're intended to be held together. We'll see that as well when we get... um, further into chapter 13. So here we go. Chapter 12, point number one, all of life is worship, starting 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he's appealing to the church, the believers in Rome because they need exhorted to daily get on the altar. And so do we, right? Like we all have the tendency to want to wiggle off the altar. We don't want to be a living sacrifice. So, but also he's saying that my appeal is in view of, in light of, The mercies of God. Don't lose sight of the mercies of God when you are called to give yourself daily, to offer yourself yourself up daily as a living sacrifice completely yielded to God. Because by the the power and the the sweetness and the wonder and the life-changing power of God's mercies, we are enabled. It makes sense We happily give our lives in service of God. Okay, so what are those mercies? Again, we can't kind of go through the first 11 chapters, but think about it. We were all under the wrath of God. Like that's what we deserve in our sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve condemnation. We all deserve hell. But now, Romans 3 God has done everything necessary through Christ that we can be justified. 
We can be reconciled to God. We can be forgiven. And he is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So the condemnation that we deserve fell on Jesus. And when you trust in Jesus as your Savior, then his righteousness becomes yours and you are reconciled to God the Father. His mercy is incredible. And chapter four, the love of God is poured out into our hearts. Chapter eight, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. So his mercy is incredible. Don't lose sight of his mercy. In view of his mercy, keep your eyes fixed on his mercy. As you hear this exhortation, this appeal to present your body, all of your life, as a living sacrifice, day after day, holy and acceptable to God. That is your spiritual worship. So, we have some altar aversion, don't we? Like, worship is not just something we do on Sundays for an hour and a half. Worship is all of life. It's a living sacrifice 24-7. Worshiping God is not just singing words at a certain time in the service. It's doing all of life before the face of God, trusting him, seeking to glorify him in every nook and cranny, every aspect of our life, whether it's business, family, marriage, you know, money, everything. So the same verb for present, you know, present your bodies, is also found in Romans chapter 6 where Paul says, do not present your members, your body, your body parts, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. You can use your tongue for righteousness. You can use your tongue for unrighteousness, right? So offer that member. This tongue belongs to Jesus if you're a Christian. So use it to build people up, not tear them down. Use it to to bless and not curse, right? These hands, these feet, this mind, these eyes. So do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves, same word, to God as those who've been brought from death to life. See, the mercies are in view again here. Don't lose sight of it. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Sin shouldn't rule. You are not under law, but under grace. You're under grace. You're under the lordship of Jesus. So all of your body, all of your life should be offered up to God as a pleasing sacrifice to him. So we need to keep the mercies in view, be filled up with the mercies of God because when we've lost sight of the mercies of God, living sacrifice feels like just flat out loss and too costly and we don't want to do it and sadly what ends up happening is we get filled up with a bunch of other things we get filled up with worldliness self-pity and complaining and coveting and jealousy and bitterness and entitlement and selfishness and pride and sinful anger and all the rest so I appeal to you this is for all of us brothers and sisters let's keep our gaze fixed on the mercies of God, not lose sight of them, and normal Christian life. All of life is worship every day, offering ourselves up, every aspect of our being to God. All of life is worship. So 
Second point, let's not be conformed to this world, but transformed. Look at verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the world is constantly gonna try to squeeze you into its mold. Okay, the world in the Bible is like the fallen human nature writ large. Right? It's, it's the world in its fallenness and rebellion against God. So sexual deviance, for instance, from God's good, loving design. We are all individually bent sexual sinners. Okay, We need to be remade by God. But when you get a bunch of bent people forming a society, you end up with a porn industry. That's the world. And the sexual revolution and the dangerous normalization of transgenderism with its impact on young people who are so malleable and curious. Do you see, like, on and on, the world wants to squeeze us into its mold. But the world is not just the sexual revolution. It's not just intersectionality or pro-choice politics and messaging that we've got to guard against. Conformity to the world is also giving a pass on stuff when the person is in your tribe but not being objective or careful with context with those who are not in your tribe. What do I mean by that? (laughs) I want to be really specific here just for the sake of the point. Like, why did it take so long for Jerry Falwell Jr. to have to resign? And do you see how Christians not critiquing those in their own tribe undermines our witness. You see, that's worldliness that allowed that to take place. So worldliness is also this nasty tribalism and us versus them that characterizes so much of our discourse in America. So listen, I I know I'm going to like, people are going to just antenna go up here in a second. So listen, just listen. Does every Christian who voted for Trump do so for the same reasons? No. For some, it was with full awareness of how morally bankrupt he is. The platform issues really matter and have a lot of downstream impact. And also, let's note that every person of color who says... Black Lives Matter doesn't mean the same thing. And some of us lump everyone that uses that language into the same category with the organization that's obviously extremely liberal and even anarchist in its ideology. Okay? So do you see how some of us are inclined to give like a context for Republican things. But we're not allowing the context for some people in, this, in these racial discussions. We need to be objective. We need to be careful. We need to listen. We need to understand what people mean. Because many people mean that as a sentence. Black 
lives matter. Do you agree with that? Yes, absolutely as a sentence. How could you be a Christian and not agree with that as a sentence? So in a sense, what what I'm saying is here, we need to live above the fray. We need to be bold with the truth no matter which way it cuts. Like, if someone criticizes the president, does that mean they must be a liberal? No. Can we also look for and appreciate and understand the good on the other side of the argument? Can we be gracious and civil with those with whom we disagree, even when our worldviews are diametrically opposed? Can we also openly disagree with those with whom we disagree and not be afraid of it? Do you see how like, it, it gets so caustic because we're not willing to either speak truth over there or critique our own side and be honest about it. So we've got to just resist the pressure to be conformed to this world. There's so many ways in which this can happen. We need our minds to be renewed. And only when our minds are renewed by the word of God are we transformed. And then, look at the context here, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, Offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, not being conformed to the world, being transformed by the renewing of our minds is all necessary to us being able to discern God's will. We need the word, brothers and sisters. I thought it was so fitting, Mark, that you just read through that litany of texts. I mean, wasn't that helpful to just, we need, we need like weekly, we need daily detox from the world. Don't we need the word of God to just wash over our minds because there's so many voices and so many talking heads and like what's true? What let's be shaped by the world, the word, <laughs> not by the world. The world wants to squeeze us into its mold. And in many ways the heat like Mark had mentioned has been turned up on us all in the last 6 months. I wonder how many of you resonate with um, there's a woman named Megan Hill writing an article for the Gospel Coalition, which is another source of commentary on biblical truth and intersection with life and current events that I'd recommend. It's thegospelcoalition.org. She wrote an article recently that said, why is it so hard to read my Bible these days? So she says, since, Mar- since March, I've struggled to maintain my daily habit of Bible reading and prayer. Some days I've happily turned to the next passage in my year-long plan. Some days I've slogged through my daily chapters only because I know it's the right thing to do, but some days I've skipped altogether. According to new research, I'm not alone. A recent study from Barna Group and the American Bible Society reports that daily Bible reading among Americans has dropped during the pandemic, with only 8.5% of the population opening the scriptures every day compared to 13.7% in 2019. Anybody resonate with her? You know, just your own life over the last six months, maybe even attention span, that more difficult. But isn't that crazy? Like, that's exactly the opposite of what we need when things get harder. I mean, we need the word like more than we need food, regardless of the circumstance, but especially when it gets harder. So, we can't lose sight of these two main points when we walk through the rest of chapter 12. Um, These next 
few points we're going to do quickly, okay? Because verses 1 and 2 are like a heading over all that comes after. So I'm not going to take time unpacking each imperative. Don't worry. I'm only going to briefly comment here and there. But listen, as we read through chapter 12, please look at these words let the inspired, authoritative, life-giving, convicting, heart-stirring words of God wash over you right now and seep into your soul. Don't just give kind of token attention. Like, welcome this. This is God speaking to us. Open up to this. We need ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to humbly receive, and be shaped by God's word. We need the renewal of our minds so that we are transformed, so that we can discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here we go, points three, four, and five, and six. We're going to go through pretty quickly here, okay? Humility, interdependent unity, grace given to give grace, because gifts are given for a purpose, and then metamorphosis, okay? So Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Don't be conformed to this world. (laughs) Isn't this world just filled with people that think too highly of themselves? And that's a problem. Let's instead be transformed by the renewal of our minds, the mind of Christ, our humble Savior. Think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So humility. Next point, interdependent unity. For as in one body we have many members, this is the body of Christ, and the members do not have, all have the same function, so we, though many... Sorry, he's using the example of the human body. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So again, don't be conformed to this world. Don't think you don't need the body of Christ. That would be a worldly perspective of self-sufficiency, lone rangerism. And also, don't think you have no obligations to the body of Christ. That also would be worldly thinking. Be transformed by the renewal of your minds. You are one in Christ and there's all these members, but each member needs to do its work for the health of the body and the growth of the body. Verse 6, grace given to give grace. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't sit on the sidelines especially not as an armchair critic. That's really cheap. Use your (laughs) gifts. They're given to you for a reason. So if prophecy, use it in proportion to your faith. If service, in your serving to the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal. I was convicted of that one recently. I've seen my zeal cooling. Sometimes you can just grind it out, right? Lord, renew my zeal. I want to lead with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Again, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So do you see how all this follows on the heels of 12, 1 and 2? This is what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is what it looks like. And it goes on, verse 9 to 21. This is what it looks like to be transformed. Okay, that's, that's the word in Greek that we get our word in English, metamorphosis. 
You know, what is metamorphosis? It's a change of form, change of form or nature from one thing to a completely different thing by natural or supernatural means. You know, it's like a caterpillar to a butterfly or a moth. So what does it look like? What does it sound like when you are not conformed to the world but transformed? This is, this is beautiful. Let love be genuine. Isn't it so easy for it to be fake and about that thin? That's, that's what you're going to get in the world. But in the church, it can be genuine because it's God's love filling us and worked out through us. So let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. It is like dog-eat-dog competition out there, isn't it? Here's the competition in the church. Outdo one another in showing honor. How cool would that be? I mean, what kind of culture, what's in the atmosphere if that's what characterizes how we do life together? Looking for ways to honor one another. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Don't be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. None of those things is natural to us apart from the help of the Spirit and the mercy of God at work in our life. Don't be conformed to this world. Hopeless, joyless, impatient, self-sufficient. No, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We can do it. Even in the midst of COVID, we can show, show hospitality. You know, the back deck, meet at a park, whatever. We can get creative. And then bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind. You know, you can actually engage in civil disobedience and bless those who persecute you. <laughs> Anyway, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be conformed to this world. There's so little harmony in this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Don't be conformed to this world, but transformed. Think about that. Let that sink in. Give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Some of you might feel like, I don't have to worry about it. That's going to be like a people pleaser. No, 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 no. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Doesn't mean be a people pleaser. It's just, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Don't be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, not even by gossip or slander. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will replace, says the Lord. Again, totally countercultural. Don't be conformed to this world. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not be overcome by evil, 
but overcome evil with good. Don't you want to be a part of a community that lives out this vision, these commands? Isn't this beautiful? Can you imagine how beautiful this could be? And, you know, it is in places in the body of Christ. And yet we all need the exhortation and the appeal to keep offering our bodies as living sacrifices, not being conformed but transformed so that we can live this out. Okay, so how are we going to do chapter 13? Um, I'm just going to read it in a minute here, and I'm going to figure out how in the world to summarize this in about five minutes. Um, Yeah, so let's look at chapter 13. Love and God's law. Look down at the other end of this bookend. This is why I say Paul's given us a heads up to see that this is all hanging together. Look at 13, 8 to 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So he's talked about love and body life in chapter 12, and then he has this love for neighbor thing at the end, or, you know, in 13, 8 to 10, which means that what's in the middle is not disconnected from chapter 12 and 13, 8 to 10. So let's read through 13, 1 to 7 and try to draw this to a close here. Again, let this, we may not all agree on the application of this to our current moment in you know, a number of different ways, but none of us can sidestep this passage. We need to meditate on it. We need to be transformed by it. We need our minds renewed by it, right? So let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? Because there is no authority except for God, except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So listen, Paul is not doing some Pollyanna-ish thing like rose-colored glasses as if he lived in this perfect, beautiful Christian society. Nero was on the throne, folks. He was no friend of Christians. He eventually, things got worse later on, he eventually lit his garden with Christians dipped in pitch, blaming the fire on them. So, 
what in the world does this mean, Paul? Well, generally speaking, this is true. That doesn't mean it's absolute. Okay, there are other passages that talk about reasons to civilly disobey. You know, Acts 5. Oftentimes, it's been stated this way by theologians. We submit to and honor the government, the governing authorities, unless they command us to do something that God forbids or forbid us to do something that God commands. Then the right thing to do, the righteous thing to do is to resist. We must obey God rather than men, like Peter in Acts 5. You can't preach this name anymore. Well, we must obey God rather than men. Or those midwives back in Exodus 1 and 2. Kill all the babies, you know, all the male babies. We must obey God rather than men. So, (laughs) I think maybe I'll try to wrap it up this way here. Because the application of these things, we may not all always agree on. But let's make sure that our minds and our hearts are saturated with Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, passage that Miriam read, or Titus 2, for instance. These are not like just a few passages here and there in isolation. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So I'll just close with this one. Um, Oh, man. Uh, Actually, I won't. I'll send that article by Kevin DeYoung. Maybe somehow you can read the whole thing on your own. It's really helpful. Why did I put the last point, one nation under God transformed to do his will? Yes, that sounds like the Pledge of Allegiance, okay? But the reason I raise that is because of 1 Peter 2. We are actually called to be an alternate nation, a holy nation, okay, as Christians. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So mercy makes all the difference. And in view of the mercies of God, brothers and sisters, let's present ourselves day after day as living sacrifices. Let's live out the vision in these chapters. Let's guard our hearts and our minds from being squeezed into the world's mold to being shaped by the world by its values and vision and and lies. Let's bathe our minds and our hearts in the word of God so that we are renewed and transformed We are a new and holy nation under God. We are here to show our nation, the city of man, right, what it looks like to live under God. This is what real life and hope looks like, and this is where it's found. This is where real unity can be found. This is where model citizens are to be found, in the city of God, his holy nation. So let's just meditate on, drink in, maybe read Romans 12 every day 
this week and take the prayer directory and just pray through our church family and just ask the Lord to transform us, to guard us from being conformed to this world, squeezed into its mold and transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can live out this beautiful vision and become this countercultural community that God calls us to be. So let's pray and then we're gonna sing um, a closing song, Good and Gracious King, a fitting conclusion to our morning together. Lord, we need your grace. We need to be shaped by it more than we are shaped by the world around us. Or please help us to guard our hearts and minds from being shaped and molded to reflect this world around us. Instead, Lord, shape and mold us by your mighty, merciful word that we might be conformed to the image of your son and reflect his beautiful image to the world around us. We pray it all in his name. Amen.